U2 frontman Bono testified before a Senate subcommittee this week. For some reason, the rock star, who may or may not also be Phil Collins, told the committee that the way to defeat Islamic terrorist group ISIS was through the magical weapon of laughter. It's like you speak violence, you speak their language, but you laugh at them when they're goose-stepping down the street, and it takes away their power. So I'm, I'm suggesting that the Senate send in Amy Schumer and Chris Rock <laughs> and uh, Sasha Baron Cohen. ISIS leader Abu Bakr al-Abdadi responded to the suggestion, saying, quote, We of the Islamic State would be only too happy to welcome Jewish comedian Sasha Baron Cohen. We are sure we will have many laughs with him. In fact, tell him we think we can help him get ahead. Ahead, get it? Ha, ha, ha. You see, we Islamic terrorists can be comical as well, unquote. The Daily Wire approached Mr. Cohen for a comment on Bono's plan to send him to deal with ISIS, but could only find an empty pair of sneakers and a trail of dust where Mr. Cohen used to be. Al-Abdadi said he would also be delighted to welcome comedian Amy Schumer, remarking, quote, A sense of humor is a most excellent trait in an infidel whore. It will allow Ms. Schumer to entertain her master between her other harem duties. Democrat Senator Jean Shaheen said the Senate subcommittee would take Bono's suggestion under advisement just as soon as they finished considering Facebook creator Mark Zuckerberg's plan. Zuckerberg says he wants to defeat ISIS by, quote, creating a world where understanding and empathy can spread faster than hate. Senator Shaheen says American scientists have so far managed to create a form of peanut butter that can spread faster than hate, but fast-spreading understanding and empathy are still years away, though both are very tasty with strawberry jam. Bono and Zuckerberg's comments have raised many questions among thoughtful Americans, such as, how did these two morons get so rich? Does this mean the Joshua Tree album only sounds kind of deep when you're stoned? And which one wrote that great soundtrack to Disney's Tarzan? Next week, the subcommittee will hear ideas on how to deal with Islamic violence from Chris Rock, who says he believes terrorism can only be defeated by fatuous Irish singers. Rock said, quote, maybe the U.S. should parachute that loudmouth Bono into ISIS territory, and before he goes, he can kiss my black ass. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Clavin, and this is The Andrew Clavin Show. <laughs> I, I always actually kind of like Bono, but you know, come on. <laughs> I'm sorry. All right, we got an exciting show. First, we have our exciting set. I forgot to mention this yesterday. They, you know, they're still still building the set, but we managed to get an, a special sign. We had we sent out to the calligraphers and uh, had this special sign built behind me. Uh, and the set building goes on. Many Hebrew slaves have been killed in the building of the set. I don't know what it's going to be. I have no idea what it's going to be like, but it better be better than the, the pyramids. All right, we have an exciting show today. We're going to talk with the factual feminist, Christina Hoff Summers, who is just, I I've never met her. I'm really excited to meet her. I'm just one of her biggest fans. So I'll try not to gush, but I think she's brilliant, and uh, it's going to be a really interesting conversation. But first, a word from our sponsor. The American presidency is the most powerful office in the world, but it's not supposed to be a monarchy. What? What? <laughs> yes, that's right. It's not supposed to be a monarchy. So many current candidates view the presidency as the accumulation of all three powers, legislative, executive, and judicial, all wrapped up into one supercilious half-black guy. That is not how the framers designed it. Learn about the separation of powers and how to restore constitutional restraints in the free Hillsdale College course, The Presidency and the Constitution. You can get it at hillsdale.edu slash Andrew. Sign up for free at hillsdale.edu slash Andrew, and you get a new lesson every week right in your inbox from Hillsdale's professors. 
learn how the Constitution protects us from would-be dictators. Sounds like a, a great, great class. So yesterday, I mean, this show, it's where the future comes to find out what is going to happen. This is where, this is where it happened. Yesterday, we played Paul Ryan saying that he's not going to be the white knight on the dark horse who comes and saves the Republican Party from itself. So play, just play a little bit of that clip. We have too much work to do in the House to allow this speculation to swirl or to have my motivations questioned. So let me be clear. I do not want, nor will I accept the nomination for our party. So let me speak directly to the delegates on this. If no candidate has a majority on the first ballot, I believe that you should only choose from a person who has actually participated in the primary. Count me out. I simply believe that if you want to be the nominee for our party, to be the president, you should actually run for it. <laughs> so then he goes on and he says, that's it, end of story, full stop, period. So I, I joked after the cut, I said, you know, uh, try to be clear, Paul, don't beat around the bush because, you know, there are all these news guys who go out and then say, but what was he really saying What today? From the law news, deception experts analyze if Paul Ryan is telling the truth about not running for president. Phil Houston is CEO of Verity, a training and consulting company specializing in detecting deception by employing a model he developed while at the Central Intelligence Agency. And he says, when Speaker of the House Paul Ryan declared categorically, I do not want nor will I accept the nomination of our party. He certainly seemed to be ruling himself out as the Republican nominee. But considering the other statements Ryan made in practically the same breath, we are convinced his resolve is open to question. It's like, what does the man have to do? You know, he'd have to like confess, yes, I killed a man in Reno just to watch him die. You know, <laughs> I'd, like, I'd like to come on with my two prostitute friends and announce that I don't want to know. I mean, what, what on earth does he have to say? All right, the news is a self-generating machine. It, it's going to cover whatever it wants to cover. There is a lot of news. The Clavenless weekend is closing in on us. Like, like almost like one of those walls in the old serials. Remember, the hero would get caught between the crushing walls that were going to pin it. That, that's the Clavenless weekend is coming, and there's all this news we're not going to get to, you know, control with our minds. For instance, probably as we're speaking, the Palm Beach County State Attorney—that's the prosecutor—will is going to hold a news conference, and the word is he's going to announce that he's not going to prosecute Corey Lewandowski for tugging on Michelle Fields. So that's kind of interesting. I don't know if that's going to happen, but that's what everybody says he's going to say, and I don't know why he would be holding a news conference otherwise. He says it's going to be about this. Really interesting. I was reading, I first saw this in the New York Times today, and it said, a former newspaper, and it said, Mr. Lewandowski called Miss Fields delusional and posted on Twitter that he had never touched her, but security video provided to the police department showed Mr. Lewandowski grabbing Miss Fields by the arm and pulling her away from Mr. Trump. So the New York Times, which only used to be a newspaper, sees what everybody can see on this tape. And I've said it's not a big deal if they had apologized, if Breitbart hadn't thrown her under the bus, it would never have been a big story. But once again, the New York Times is being granted legitimacy. This is the same video that Sean Hannity says he watched a hundred times and couldn't see anything. This is that Judge Janine goes on and says, I don't see, I, you know, I've been hit by a camera in the head and it bounced right off me. You know, it's like, okay, you know, you can say it's no big deal, but you can't say it didn't happen. You can't say it's not there. And if we saw the bruises afterwards. So the New York... You know, this is the thing. This Trump delusion is giving the New York Times and the mainstream media back 
the legitimacy that they gave away by not co- honestly covering the Obama administration. It really, it really is depressing. I mean, at this point, some of these Trump supporters, and it's not the su- his supporters that I blame, but some of them, some of them, if, if Donald Trump was caught eating children, They'd be like, you know, well, there's a lot of protein in children, you know. It's like, <laughs> you know, like, like, like Abraham Lincoln saw a child once. That's isn't that the same thing? All right. So the the New York primary is next week. That's the other thing that's uh, coming up. Oh, and there's also oh, and there's a debate tonight in Brooklyn between Sanders and Hillary Clinton. This is the debate. Sanders has been egging her on, and she, of course, doesn't want to because anytime she comes out of her house, her poll ratings drop. <laughs> Twenty-seven thousand people showed up to hear Bernie Sanders yesterday at a rally. 27,000 people. I mean, that's insane to listen to Bernie Sanders condemn Wall Street. To condemn Wall Street is in New York. Without Wall Street, there is no New York. <laughs> no New York. I mean, without Wall Street, there's just this kind of like New York shape where New York used to be. I mean, what do they think this? You know, he's oh, those terrible, you know, people on Wall Street. The guys on Wall Street, and I, you know, I know there's some bad guys on Wall Street, but the guys on Wall Street, are the guys who donate all the money to the charter schools in New York, the art museums in New York, the churches, the temples, the charities, all that stuff. It's like, feel the burn. Feel the burn. We're going to burn up our charities. We're going to burn up our charter schools. What are they talking about? You know, I'm reading The Big Short by Michael Lewis. I saw the movie, and I liked the movie. The movie was enjoyable, but it annoyed me that the entire onus for the 2008 crash was put on the back of Wall Street. Now, Wall Street did some insane things. They did insane things. There were all these bad housing loans, right? And so they wrapped them up in these, they hid them in these uh, bonds. So nobody knew that they were buying these horrible loans and all the Moody's and all those rating agencies kept going, yeah, triple A, triple A, triple A. You go like, what do you mean the triple A? Well, it's a triple A, you know, something. I don't know, maybe triple A risk or something. I don't know what it, so, so they were selling this stuff and it got bigger and bigger and bigger until people were buying bets on the bonds that were covering these crappy loans. But he never mentions in the book and he never mentions in the movie why the banks were making these loans. I mean, why they were making these loans. Do you think they just woke up one day? You think some banker, I mean, you know how exciting bankers are. You think some guy just, you know, got up, put on his his pinstripe suit and nodded his tie and said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to loan some money to people who can't pay it back. What a day this is going to be. You know, I'm tired. I'm tired of playing it safe, buddy. I'm just going to get out there. You know, I got, my wife is getting bored. I'm going to really go out there and give some bad loans, you know. They did it because the government told them they had to they shamed them they kept saying oh you're not loaning to black people which wasn't true they just weren't loaning to people who couldn't pay it back some of whom were black so they, they, they still talk about it they still talk about redlining they throw this off they were redlining redline they're drawing a red line around people who couldn't pay back their loans and not and not loaning to them and the government shamed them into doing it and they said they had you know those those agencies that were kind of sub-government not quite government agencies, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, and they said, basically, we'll protect your loans. We'll protect your loans. So they started giving loans to people who couldn't pay it back. See, no, we like black people. You know, it's whatever, whoever, whatever color they are, as long as they can't pay it back, we'll give them money. <laughs> so that's, and then Wall Street took that. So, you know, when, they, when w, George W. Bush said, you ought to stop doing this, Barney Frank, who was in the, in the House committee that was controlling this, Barney Frank said, I'll roll the dice. I'll roll the dice. Okay, Chris Dodd was taking sweetheart loans in the Senate. He was taking sweetheart loans so they could get influence with these mortgage lenders. When the economy collapsed, who wrote the reform bill? 
Chris Dodd and Barney Frank. These two guys who should have been carted off to prison. And Barney Frank was saying, well, this is the free market that did this. It's the free market. They didn't say, I didn't hear anybody in the free market saying, let's roll the dice. It was Barney Frank. It was the government who did it. And, and you know, they just leave this out, completely out of it. Now, in the Wall Street Journal today, it says it's been a rough few weeks for President Obama's signature reform of American finance. Guess what? Deep cracks are appearing in the foundations of the Dodd-Frank law. How, how could it be? How could it be that the reform law written by the guys who caused the crisis is going down the drain? A federal judge has knocked down a major decision from Mr. Obama's Financial Stability Oversight Council, and a federal appeals court panel is questioning the constitutionality of Mr. Obama's Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. On Wednesday, regulators officially declared that most of the nation's banking giants are still too big and too complicated to fail. That's why when they fail, when they make these bad bets, when the government forces them to make these bad bets and they fail, the government has to bail them out. If they don't bail them out, they drag us all down with, with them, you know, because they're too big. They're too big. They're not regulated properly. So that's what's happening on the Bernie Sanders side. On the Hillary side, she's come up with a great new strategy. She's accusing Republicans of racism. No one on the left has ever thought of this before. This is a genuine innovation that the Hillary Clinton think tank working nights and weekends came up with this idea. How are we going to defeat the Republic? I know. I know. We'll accuse them of racism. Play the, the second cut. First, she says, first, she says there's been a lot of advances. This is a speech she made celebrating uh, Jackie Robinson. She says this is, they've made a lot of advances, including Barack Obama being elected president. But then in the last few years, there's been a lot of racial tension. But there's no connection between those two things. Who's, whose fault is it? Whose fault is it? It's the Republicans, of course. So play the second cut. I don't know how you would care. No, no, no. I'm sorry, Hillary, not, not Bill. <laughs> when the front runner for the Republican nomination was asked in a national television interview to disavow David Duke and other white supremacists supporting his campaign, he played coy. This is the same Donald Trump who led the insidious birther movement to delegitimize President Obama. He has called Mexican immigrants rapists and murderers. He wants to ban all Muslims from entering the United States, and the list goes on. And not to be outdone by his primary rival, Ted Cruz would treat Muslim Americans like criminals and religiously profile their neighborhoods. So ugly currents that lurked just below the surface of our politics have burst into the open. Yeah, that's it. That's it. And once again, by the way, once again, just to, not to, you know, rag on Donald Trump too much, but everything Hillary said about Trump was true, and everything she said about Cruz was nonsense. I mean, that's that's the problem again. You know that Trump Trump is the avatar of what the left says about us. It's like all those false charges they made. It was it's as if all those false charges they made gathered together and took shape and became Donald Trump, like some kind of special effect in a movie. You know, and now and now once again, as just as he legitimate legitimizes the New York Times after years of their dishonesty, he legitimizes those those claims, those claims of racism, which have been false all along. Let's stop here and listen to our other sponsor, Reagan.com. We love the sponsor. I always love to see that. Every time I see that picture of Reagan appear on our screen, it makes me feel better about something. I'm not sure what, maybe life. That's what it was. 
See, the problem is your privacy is under attack. You all know this is true. This is not being hysterical. You, the, you send an email and big tech companies scan your email, pick out the things they want, and then target you with unwanted advertising. Plus, of course, government agencies are collecting just about everything from your shoe size to your secret, the secret things you're looking at online. You should stop doing that. But who wants the government to know about it? So you want to take back your privacy. How do you do it? You go to Reagan.com and get an email address. You'll get your name at Reagan.com. That will become your email address. So every time your name shows up in someone's mailbox, it will also come along with President Reagan's name, which will make you look a lot better than you probably are. So you can proudly share Reagan's name with every email, and you know your emails will never be scanned or shared with third parties. Go to ReaganPrivacy.com and secure your personal private email address. Get two Free bonus months if you do it now. Two free bonus months at ReaganPrivacy.com. Okay, so a couple of weeks ago, I read this book, American Girls, and it's about this kind of, this idea that American girls are in crisis. They're living on social media. They are, you know, 13-year-old girls are being induced to send naked pictures of themselves to boys who don't care about them, then post the pictures online, call them sluts and bully them. They Their sex lives have just become kind of being used by boys at parties they never go out on dates they never nothing happens to them <coughs> except except they kind of are used by these guys who then make fun of them and toss them away they're either called prudes or called sluts i tried to get the author of this book to come on she wouldn't do it she was uh i won't call her a coward but she's not here but i thought i would talk to one of my favorite feminists christina hop summers i'll bring her on i'll hi how are you doing, Christine? Hi, how are you? I am so thrilled to meet you. I have been an enormous fan of yours for years. I discovered your book, uh, Who Stole Feminism, in a uh, bookstore in the back of Shakespeare and Company in New York back in the 90s. And it was buried oh. away, and I thought, that's an interesting title. Uh, and so I, I pulled it out and started reading it, bought it, took it home. I thought it was absolutely terrific. Uh, I came oh, home one you. day... And my wife was interviewing you. She was a freelance writer at the time. She was interviewing you. And I was shouting in the background, tell her I love her. She's so great. She's so great. <laughs> Let me just uh, tell folks a little bit about you. You are a former philosophy pro professor, a resident scholar at AEI. Are you still at AEI? You are. Yes. Uh, yes. And you do this wonderful video series, a video blog called The Factual Feminist, which is just terrific, which counters a lot of the... Uh, blithering loud mouthery that comes out from the left with actual facts, which is uh, amazing. And that's what I love so much about Who Stole Feminism. And you can be found at Twitter at at C.H. Summers. That's S-O-M-M-E-R-S, C.H. Summers on Twitter. So did you read this book, This American Girls by Nancy Jo Sales? I did. <laughs> I read it uh, on a flight. Uh, I was out at Stanford day before yesterday, debating the wage gap. Okay. I argued it was a myth, and, and I read the book, and it was uh, triggering. <laughs> it was just... <laughs> you had to go to your safe place? <laughs> I needed a safe place because it was just this faux sociology, manufacturing a crisis. Oh. And stipulate, one can be worried about girls online, we can be worried about everyone online, yeah. <laughs> because we all do it too much, and it may be addling our, our brains. But this was... Just worst case example of sort of hyping a few bad stories and then weaving it in with some anecdotes and generating a crisis, and, and you, a false crisis. And you, you feel it's false, completely false. I mean, if you were speaking to this author, you would just say this is this. There's not a crisis. If I have if I have a girl, if I'm raising a girl, I don't have to be terrified. 
Here are some inconvenient facts. <laughs> <laughs> the current generation, especially girls, the millennials, I, I mean, there's much to complain about in terms of their hypersensitivity and, you know, on the campus. It's not all of them, but a, a fair number of them are, you know, problematic on the campus when it comes to free speech and hypersensitivity. But compared to previous generations, they're by almost every metric of, of you know, problem, they are very low. There's less alcoholism. There's less drug abuse. There's less teenage pregnancy. I mean, where she's not able to cite any real statistics. So she just went sort of cherry picking and found studies that show things like, you know, there's an epidemic of girls getting plastic surgery so they look good in selfies. Well, I would like to see the research to back that up. It's preposterous. So that that's what we're dealing with. That you know, she she mentions you in the book. She uh, she mentions you and dismisses you. She quotes you in a Newsweek article. And she says, Newsweek didn't let its readers know that Summers was the author of the anti-feminist polemic, The War Against Boys. Great book, by the way, The War Against Boys. They didn't let him know. And that, that's, her, that's it. She just dismisses you because you're a so-called anti-feminist. You're not, right? You, you describe yourself as a certain kind of feminist. Isn't that right? A classical equality of opportunity feminist. I want for women what I want for everyone. Fair treatment, dignity, liberty. Yeah. <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but what I draw the line at today's sort of victim-obsessed feminism, this, this narrative that women are victims, men are pernicious predators, Women are from Venus, men are from hell. I'm just tired of that. And I've been, I've been writing. That, that one is actually true, though. That, <laughs> no. there's, a, there's a grain of truth in it all. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so let's talk about, though, the, the whole thing about sex online. Uh, certainly the, the porn seems to be, I mean, you, you can't look up a word without stumbling into porn. Uh, I've heard stories about young boys who can no longer have sex with real women because of watching porn. Some of the um, some of the pictures in the book talks about this. Some of the images are very violent. Do right. you, do you feel and and you know I I worked on a, a hotline with teenagers and did hear stories about girls being bullied, girls being uh, induced into sending naked pictures of themselves and then having them spread around. And absolutely. And, and I have talked to educators who have said that the old idea that women were protecting themselves from men that women that in other words a man had to sort of convince a girl to uh, go to go to bed with him to go out with him all this all that's gone do you feel that that there's any truth to that there's truth to it and uh, I'm rather glad that I raised I raised two boys before <laughs> social media because it's you know you don't know what your child's exposed to and in previous generations you could more or less control it and you know maybe they'd go to someone's house and see you know, a dad's playboy or something, but exposure to, to you know, very, very, uh, you know, graphic pornography is now the easiest thing in the world for a kid to do. So, but how much we have to worry about it, I don't know. I mean, the thing is, people immediately get hysterical. I've seen some research that suggests that, you know, there are, there's a small percentage of kids that are obsessed with it, but overall kids are sort of numb to it. Um, so we, we just don't know. It doesn't seem like a good thing. I would be worried. I would have every control I could on, on social media. So my child couldn't, couldn't access pornography, but how, you know, kids are very resilient. 
And we we underestimate that. And they can, you know, and, and really what bothered me in, in uh, Nancy Sales' book about American girls is that there were such caricatures of children, <laughs> especially the boys, but even the girls. They were one-dimensional little victims kind of preyed upon. And uh, girls are complicated and, and various. And we want to look how well are they doing in school? Far better than the boys. And, you know, there more kids are going to college than ever before. We're seeing now improvements in the education of sort of uh, African-American and Hispanic girls that sociologists are at a loss to explain this dis, this surge of young women, uh, uh, the, the, the odds, the rate of Hispanic girls and uh, black girls going to college is higher than white boys. Huh. This is a huge change. There's so much good news for girls, not a, necessarily a lot for boys. So these are the things, you know, I'd rather there was a book that gave us an accurate depiction of the complexity of kids' lives. There is the, the social media. They're on it too much. No one denies that. But how harmful it will, it be, will it be? And she puts it into this, this as I said, this sort of uh, neurotic victim feminist. She looks at the world through that prism. So it's all... It's all kind of predictable and so the, a lot of blather. I, I invited her on to, to talk to me and promised that I would be friendly and nice, uh, but she wouldn't come. And um, I, what I wanted to ask her is this. I'm, I'm not a feminist. I'm an individualist, which basically falls into all the things that you just said. I want everybody yes. to do whatever. I'm probably that too. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I want everyone to do what they're capable of doing, what they want to do. Right. But it, it seems to me that feminism has caused a lot of the things that, that Nancy Sales is talking about in the sense that when you teach, it has elevated what are masculine values, values of earning, values of work, of the workplace, values of working outside the home, uh, values of not uh, being, of not taking care of your children, of being, of not having children. And so young boys who used to respect girls as different, as, as being different, as having different set of values, now look at them as just kind of usable versions of themselves, uh, you know, and you can... Yeah, one of the guys. Yeah, and, you know? and that doesn't and, seem very healthy for girls, it, it seems to me. No, it's very interesting you say that because I agree with a lot of it. I think that even what we're seeing on campus with this hysteria around the rape culture, right. there's very little evidence that there's an epidemic of rape. But there is an epidemic of... It's just ungentlemanly behavior and girls being sort of treated like one of the guys and uh, let's hook up. And it's almost as if they, you, they had the hookup culture and another name for it is the rape culture. <laughs> so, you know, it's just, uh, and the only way young women could fight it, they couldn't appeal to the differences between men and women. You're not allowed to do that anymore. They couldn't appeal to traditions of, you know, male gallantry and uh, sort of, you know, uh, uh, chivalry, that's gone. Right. And the only thing they have now is, you know, taking everyone into, you know, sex court at school and having the deans manage their sex lives. It's ridiculous. Right. That it's solution is ridiculous. It's almost as if they want the law to replace the values that they threw out. Right. Which is, it just doesn't work. Get As a philosophy professor, I, one of my favorite philosophers, Edmund Burke, oh, yeah. pointed out how much better it is to have you know, these these traditions of civility in the in the mores and manners of a society. If you don't have that and you're going to use law, then it's a very blunt instrument and it's it's not nearly as effective. So, so I think as feminists, we, we let we let we, you know, we, people did feel women felt chivalry and gallantry and so forth, that it was it was sexist. And perhaps some of it was. But I think 
there was a reason that civilization developed a code of protectiveness towards women because the bedrock truth is that women on average are weaker than men right and men can hurt women yeah. <laughs> and more easily physically certainly women can get back uh, psychologically we have a lot of uh, there. <laughs> I know. I uh, believe me. But. I'm, not, I'm not sure it's that uneven the battle of the sexes, but but I also anyway. feel like chivalry sort of was an acknowledgement of respect to a uh, set of values that maybe the culture didn't reward financially as much as it did male values, and it was sort of saying yes, we understand that these values are also you know worthwhile. I have to ask you. I'm going to have to let you go. I'm running out of time. I, I hope you'll come back another time. But I want to ask you yeah. one question. Your, your blog, The Factual Feminist, is terrific, and everybody should check it out on YouTube. That's the best place to find it, right, is YouTube? Uh, YouTube, The Factual Feminist. Yeah. Uh, whole and, playlist, 42 videos correcting a it's, it's myth of the week. It is just great stuff, and you can also be found on Twitter, at C.H. Summers, S-O-M-M-E-R-S. Do you ever despair? I mean, the, the noise, the noise that comes out of the left is so overwhelming that facts, I mean, you, you saw it yesterday with the equal pay thing, you're out fighting against it, but of course, if you turn on TV, all three networks are covering it as if it were absolutely true. Do you ever despair that of, of the facts beating back this empire of lies? Occasionally. <laughs> I have a more or less sunny disposition, I'm optimistic, but just the other day at Stanford, I you know met so many students who were fighting the forces of unreason on campus and the you know all the trigger warnings and the safe spaces and the hysteria and they were they were very much in the minority hmm. so uh, now i don't think the majority of kids are part of this very repressive intolerant little movement on campus the majority are just kind of silent bystanders and then there's this active group but i worry about the power of reason to prevail and i'm just i'm and, I, and now it's it's almost as if they they can. There's no basis, for example, most of these feminist victoids, factoids, but they've been repeated so often and they're echoed in the media. They're almost beyond rational analysis. Yes. So it's sort of they can they can control what the truth is, except that it's not true. So it's, <laughs> well, you're, it's you're, demoralizing sometimes. It, yeah. Well, you're not alone. You're not alone in feeling that. Christina, thank you so much for coming on. I hope you will come back. Uh, it's a pleasure talking to you, Christina. Oh, Hopson. pleasure talking to you. I, Love your show. <laughs> Thank you very much. I'll, I'll talk to you again. Okay, bye-bye. The Factual Feminist. I know that sounds like an oxymoron, but if you go on and uh, look at it on YouTube, she is just terrific. Uh, Christina Hoff Summers. All week long, Stuff I Like has been bad movies that are good. So we always like to end with some music. So I want to find a bad song that's good. This is from this is from a movie called Just For You, a Bing Crosby musical that is a bad musical that's good. I love this. It has some great, great bad songs that are great. This one was nominated for an Academy Award. It's called Zing A Little Zong. And it took me, the lyrics go like this. Zing a little zong with me. I know we're not beside the Zyder Z, but when you're zitting by the side of me, I want to zing a little zong. <laughs> it took me a long time to figure out what the hell this was about. But the Zyder Z is a bay off the Netherlands, so they're speaking in a Dutch accent. They're singing in a Dutch accent. So here it is. It's Bing Crosby with the beautiful Jane Wyman, or as we call her, the first Mrs. Reagan, singing Zing a Little Zong from Just For You, 1952. Zing, 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 zing,
I'm sure that we could make a great duet And we could sing a little love song all night long oh, You grab the melody and I'll take some of the open spots <laughs> <laughs> Sing a little song, you can, you can turn it off <laughs> Sing a little song, a great song this, The movie also has the wonderful song She's Arriving on the 1010 from 1010 Tennessee That's the week, this week sped by I'm Andrew Claven. This is the Andrew Claven Show. We will see you next week. Thank <laughs> you.